So we're getting close to finishing this short series, which um, I interrupted our longer study through the book of Acts to do this series because we earlier this year crossed the line of our 35th anniversary as a church, um, which caused me to reflect on what those 35 years have meant and where we are at at this present moment, trying to discern and understand where we're at from the Lord's perspective, uh, which is ultimately the only perspective that matters. You know, we can all have our opinions about differing uh, churches and their and their spiritual condition, but only the Lord's opinion is ultimately uh, weighty in that in that regard. So um, I was motivated to um, direct us to these two chapters in the Book of Revelation that I've always wanted to teach through and never never took the opportunity to do so. And in these two chapters, chapters two and three of Revelation, there's a series of letters, short, very short letters from the Lord Jesus himself through the Apostle John to these seven selected and chosen churches that were in near proximity to where John was imprisoned off of the coast of modern day Turkey on an island called Patmos. And he was able to send letters by the Roman Empire Postal Service across the channel to the mainland. And from that mainland, there was a route that the postal carrier would take through these seven cities. And there was a church established in each one of these seven cities. So uh, the Lord sent a, in a sense, like a bundle of letters to these churches, seven letters, which um, each one went to each one of the seven churches, but they're part of, of course, the larger book of Revelation. What we've seen from these is that the Lord introduced these letters in a vision in chapter one, in which he showed himself to John as a heavenly high priest, uh, the ultimate fulfillment of what the Old Testament high priest could only symbolize and point forward to. And in his revelation as a high priest, he, he revealed himself as standing in the midst of seven golden lampstands and then described or explained to John that those seven golden lampstands represented in a symbolic way the seven churches that he was writing to. And I believe he chose seven churches because seven is a biblically complete number. And as a result, what we learn from these seven letters is there are lessons for every church to learn from how the Lord addresses the specific circumstances and spiritual condition of these seven. Um, we won't find ourselves identically represented in any one of these seven letters, but there are lessons for us to learn from each one. And so that brings us to the one line that's repeated in all seven of these letters. And for today's study, we're going to look at the church in the city of Philadelphia. And of course, you understand this isn't Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. This is um, Philadelphia in the ancient world. And that line that's shared in all of these letters is in verse 13 of the Philadelphian letter. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now he writes an individual letter to all seven focusing on their specific spiritual circumstance condition, but he then broadens the application to all of the churches, and not just all of the seven, all the churches that existed at that time, and of course, all the churches that would ever read this and learn from it and gain wisdom and understanding from it uh, in all of the generations to follow right up until us. All right, so uh, with that, what we're looking at are evaluation letters, where the Lord is visiting, in a sense, spiritually, that church, like I mentioned Bob and Jonathan visiting from Idaho, um, today among us, but think of it in terms of if Jesus were to visit this church on any Sunday morning, what would he see? What would he conclude? What, what, would, what would be pleasing to him in our midst? And what would potentially be displeasing to him? And then the Lord was very, very direct and honest with these seven churches. Didn't hold anything back. Where they needed to be criticized, he criticized them. Um, in our, in our last two studies, which was the letter uh, that, that preceded this one at the beginning of chapter three, the letter to the church in Sardis, he had a very, very strong uh, rebuke for them because they were 
from his evaluation, they had already reached the, the worst level of decline that any church can reach, which is the Lord identified them as a dead church. So the Lord, again, holds nothing back. He's not, he's not concerned about hurting the feelings of the, the church members. He's not concerned about, well, if I say this too honestly or too directly, I'm gonna hurt their feelings and they won't wanna come back and then the church's numbers are going to diminish. Um, he just speaks the truth as the church really needed to hear the truth. Now in this letter, this next one, the church in Philadelphia, it's, it's one of the two, along with Smyrna, as we studied earlier, it's one of the two that's one of the most encouraging letters of all of the seven churches. They were uh, what we could only describe as a healthy church. They were in a good place. Uh, there's, uh, some commentators say there's not a single critical thing that the Lord says to the church in Philadelphia. I'll read the letter here in just a moment. Uh, others say, well, there is one critical thing that he says to them, and I'm going to highlight that one critical thing. And I did so, uh, I don't know if you saw the previous um, uh, overhead, in titling this particular message, as I've titled each one of these churches, kind of characterizing them in the title. Um, Philadelphia, I believe, was what we could only rightly describe as a weak church. Now, hearing that description, you might automatically think in terms of, that's a negative, that's, that's, that's some criticism from the Lord to the church there. Uh, you shouldn't be weak, you should, should, you should be strong. But I don't really take this description by the Lord in this letter as a criticism. I think he's just simply describing a truth about their current situation and their, their current spiritual condition, but not in the sense of they were doing something wrong and that led to them being weak. It was actually exactly the opposite. They were doing something very, very right. And doing something very, very right led them to being weak. And we might think uh, that those two things can't possibly go together, can they? Uh, if we do the right thing, we'll always end up stronger as a result. And uh, it is true that ultimately we will be stronger for doing righteousness and being obedient and being faithful to the Lord. But we may pass through a period of weakness on the way to the strength that he intends to bring us into. So uh, let's read the letter. I'll give a brief, after I read it, I'll give a brief background of the city and then we'll break down the letter into the sections that we've done for each one of these seven letters. So starting in verse seven of Revelation chapter three. It's one of the longer letters, um, but um, uh, there's some wonderful stuff in it uh, that we will uh, try to cover today. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know, and this line here is the one that if there is anything critical, the Lord has to say to them, it's this line, but again, I'm not taking it as a criticism from the Lord. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, a little bit of uh, background. Uh, the background is helpful for each one of these seven letters, not because it's just some fascinating history that doesn't have anything to do with us today. This has everything to do with them 
in the day that they received the letter. The background of the city is, is kind of the context then in which the Lord is working with his people in the midst of that city and that city's history. And what the Lord is going to do is throughout the course of the letter, he's going to reference different key details of the city, but then apply it to his people in an unexpected way. And he did this again with each one of these seven letters. It's just interesting to me, you know, each, each church has its moment in history. Our 35 years have been, you know, in this generation, in, in this century, and in this cultural and social situation that's far different than the Philadelphian church. But the Lord plants each church in its own time in history, in its own, own cultural context. And it's important for us to understand not just what, what is happening apart from all of those things in our, in our personal and corporate relationship with the Lord, but how the context of where the Lord plants us and when the Lord plants us has an impact on what he's doing with us and through us. So in terms of Philadelphia, the city was an important city in the ancient Roman Empire in that it was located at the juncture of multiple trade routes. Now trade routes in the old days were like uh, railroads, trucking lines, and airlines in the modern day in that the economy of the day depended upon trade routes. The, the, the transport of various goods uh, from all different parts of the world to other parts of the empire was kind of like the economic lifeblood of the Roman Empire. And Philadelphia was right at the juncture of several of those trade routes. And as a result, it was known in the empire, this city of Philadelphia, as the gateway to the east. And the east mean a location where many of the goods that the empire depended upon were, were uh, traded. Uh, it was the city's name, uh, you might be familiar with this already, uh, literally translates, it's a Greek name and it translates Philadelphia. It means brotherly love or the love of brothers for each other. And the reason it had been named that is the founding king of the city had a royal brother. The two of them loved each other very much, which was very unusual in the ancient world. Uh, generally, if there were two royal brothers, they'd always be competing for who could sit upon the throne. Uh, there's a famous, uh, I didn't see it, but there's a famous TV show that was, that was catching the attention of our whole culture a few years ago called Game of Thrones. It, you know, that's t that was typical of the ancient world. But in this case, these two brothers loved each other dearly. And uh, so much so that uh, the king that established the city um, traveled to a distant land at one point and rumors came back to the city that he had died. And so his brother took the throne in his place. And then lo and behold, the, the original brother showed up unannounced and the brother sitting on the throne could have held onto the throne, but he graciously stepped aside and asked his brother to retake the throne out of the love that he shared for him. Um, the name of the city was originally Philadelphia, and of course it was still known as that in some sense in the writing of this letter, but it, the name of the city had been changed multiple times throughout its history, and uh, that is going to be a, an issue that the Lord will, will tag on to and address when at the end of the letter he talks about the changing of the names of the members of the church as part of his promise to them of the future. Uh, every one of these cities, all the seven, uh, were characterized culturally surrounding the church as idolatrous cities. Uh, Greek and, and Roman gods were commonly worshiped. And the two that were the primary focal point of worship in the city of Philadelphia were um, Dionysus, who was the god of feasting and the feasts were generally like eat as much food as you possibly can as part of the worship they'd get together 
and they would worship by throwing a, a, a great feast. They would drink as much alcohol as they could handle and sometimes uh, much more than they could handle. And then it would generally devolve, the worship service, if you could imagine this, would generally devolve into an orgy. So this was one of the prime gods of the city. And then the second prime god, of course, was like in all of the other cities we've studied so far, a big problem as far as the church was concerned, which was emperor worship. Uh, the emperor had his own temple. He had his own statue that was honored and sacrificed to. And uh, we're talking about the Roman Empire who was worshiped as a god in the flesh. And interestingly for Philadelphia, out of these seven cities, uh, while the, the, the location where this city existed back at the time of the writing of this letter is no longer called Philadelphia today. Um, in that location, it's the only one of these seven cities that still has uh, viable churches to this present day. Even though it's a Muslim area today, uh, there are uh, true Christian churches in that area, which is, um, which is unusual that, that churches would survive for such a long uh, period of time, but I think it's probably linked to um, the uh, pleasure of the Lord in the condition of the church at the time of the writing of this one. All right, so for each of these seven letters, the Lord, I, says, I said to you um, previously, reintroduces himself. These are all people who know the Lord. These are true churches. They, the churches themselves know the Lord, but the Lord um, names himself in different ways for each one of these seven letters, and each one of those is significant in the context of the city. So here, how does the Lord introduce himself? He says in, in verse uh, seven, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, and then as explanation of what the key of David means, uh, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. So the Lord introduces himself with three distinguishing characteristics. First, he wants them to know that he is the Holy One. Now, of course, the Lord is the Holy One. He is the only human being that has lived an entire life in this world and never once sinned. But it has greater significance even than that Biblically speaking, uh, this is really a reference to a, a specific passage from the book of Isaiah. Uh, let's turn back there for a moment and we'll come back to Revelation 3. Uh, turn, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 40. It's a clue, it's a hint to connect to this passage and the meaning, the significance of what was communicated in this Isaiah prophecy. In this portion of prophecy, Isaiah quotes the Lord himself. I'm going to start reading from Isaiah 40, verse 20, excuse me, verse 22, and I'll read through to verse 25. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. The person being described here as so great and so awesome that it's, he's above all of the business on the earth from the smallest business like like the business of grasshoppers to the largest business on earth, which is the business of the rulers of empires. And even the rulers of empire, empires are like emptiness to this one in comparison to his greatness. Even if that empire and the emperor is declaring himself to be a god among men, he's still as emptiness to this great one. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. The Lord reveals himself to a church that's struggling in the midst of, a, of an empire 
where the leader and the ruler of that empire is saying, I am a God among men, and I am a God to you. They're struggling in the midst of that pressure. And the Lord is encouraging them and saying, no, I am, I am the Holy One that spoke to Isaiah those hundreds of years ago and made it clear that those that are attempting to rule over you and oppress you in that, in that way, in that idolatrous way, are as emptiness to me. This claim, when the Lord says, and we'll head back to the Revelation passage now, when he says the words of the Holy One, he is identifying himself as the one who spoke those words to Isaiah. The Lord Jesus is the Holy One who sits above all things, who rules truly over all. Even if the inhabitants of the earth, who are like grasshoppers actually, but if they disregard him and disavow him, nevertheless, he is the Holy One who rules above them all. Now, the second description that he gave of himself to reintroduce himself to the churches, he is the true one. Now, true can mean true in comparison to false, and I think there's probably some implication there, but this particular Greek word that uh, the Lord had John choose that's translated for us as true refers to someone who or something that is genuine or authentic in comparison, in contrast to that which is fake. And so the idea here is that the the idolatrous culture surrounding them is a culture given over to falsehood and to fakes. Fake gods are being worshiped in the place of the one true and living God. And he wants to encourage the Philadelphians that they are connected to and they are committed to the one true, real, authentic, genuine God overall. Now the third identifier or, or reintroducer is that he is the one, and this is the Lord Jesus that's being described, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. This is also a reference to a different prophecy in Isaiah. Let's go back to Isaiah again. And we'll look in chapter 22 this time. There are many, many uh, so many. I did a, a kind of a discussion-based Bible study with a small group of men here a few years ago where we just went through a Revelation chapter 1 together. And what we were looking for in that particular study, you know, there's so much in the book of Revelation, but what we were looking for in that particular study was um, we were looking for Old Testament connections to what the Lord was now revealing and speaking about in the book of Revelation. And how many connections did we find? I mean, we just, we were overwhelmed by how many connected points there are between the book of Revelation and various Old Covenant, Old Testament portions like this one. So here we're in uh, Revelation, uh, excuse me, Isaiah 22. And uh, we'll just read a single verse, which is what the Lord Jesus is referencing. And, and then I'll explain without reading the whole chapter and going through the whole context. I'll just briefly explain what's going on here. Verse 22 of Isaiah 22. And I, this is the Lord speaking, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut and he shall shut and none shall open. So very clearly, this one is not difficult to connect. Very clearly, this is the passage that the Lord is referencing. And now he, he introduces himself again to the church in Philadelphia by saying, I am the one in my relationship to you who fulfills this prophecy that was given here in Isaiah 22. Now, there is a historic circumstance before the Lord Jesus ever, because this was written 700 years before Christ, this passage in, um, in Isaiah, before Christ was born as a human being. And this, the context is this. There was in, at this time that Isaiah is prophesying, in the uh, kingdom of Israel, there was a, an unfaithful royal steward. Now, royal stewards, generally speaking, were men that were, were entrusted by the king to represent his authority and carry out business for his kingdom. 
in which the, the uh, king would, would give authority to the steward and say, take care of this business so that I can focus on bigger and more important things and I don't have to worry about what you're taking care of. But the royal steward in, being, in receiving that authority from the king had been unfaithful. And so what the Lord had done was he had removed that unfaithful royal steward from his place of steward, stewardship and then he had given his authority to another or was here prophesying and promising that he would give his authority to another who would be faithful in the place of the previously unfaithful royal steward. Now, what's happening here in the context of this entire letter, and we'll get into this a little bit further in the letter to the Philadelphians when he begins to speak about a synagogue of Satan, is that there was an issue happening, kind of a, a spiritual tension between two different congregations in the city of Philadelphia. They weren't two different churches because at this point in earliest church history, generally speaking, there was only one church represented in each city of the empire. One church that had been planted and all true believers that had been born again and come to know the Lord would go and attend and meet at that one church. That's, of course, greatly different than our Christian church experience in our, in our present generation. If, you wanna, if you're a true believer, you're born again and you want to go to church, how many options do you have today? Just in the San Fernando Valley alone. Uh, I would mentioned before we were involved in a crusade effort with a, a group of churches and I was given the responsibility in this effort to uh, kind of catalog all of the churches that might be available to participate. And I was given a list, and this was back 30 years ago. I was given a list, there were 700 known and identified churches in the San Fernando Valley alone. And there are probably many more than that today. So I'm just gonna you know, give a low estimate and say, just in our valley, you know, of some two million people, there's probably a thousand churches that identify themselves as Christian. Now, are they all true churches? Not likely, but there are many, many, many true churches in this one valley. So here in Philadelphia, it wasn't like that. There was only one true church, but there were two congregations and they were at odds with each other and there was a great tension between them. And the congregations were the Jewish synagogue in the city and this church now, which Generally, as Paul had traveled through this area of the empire um, and had proclaimed the gospel in each one of these cities, uh, generally his strategy was to, uh, and we'll see this as we get deeper into our study through the book of Acts eventually, is that he would have a spiritual strategy as he would visit the city. He would first visit the synagogue in the city and he would proclaim the gospel there to the, the Jewish congregants of that synagogue hoping that those that were most familiar with scripture would be would be most receptive to the gospel of of Jesus being the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies but that reception wasn't always a favorable one and uh, oftentimes as it happened here in this city attention did develop because as uh, members of the synagogue were born again and came to know the Lord and began to attend church services with Gentiles that had also been born again, which was happening here in Philadelphia, uh, the synagogue leaders began to view this as a threat to the spiritual integrity of the synagogue. And so they began to identify the church as their enemy. And had even gone so far in this case, in this city, with kicking out the Jewish born-again believers from the synagogue and banning them from synagogue attendance and synagogue membership, which what that meant was they could no longer, not only no longer attend services at the synagogue, but they were also cut off from business relationships with synagogue members, fa open family relationships, extended family relationships with synagogue members. And it created a, a real problem for uh, the Jewish believers in the city. So Jesus identifies himself here as the one who has the key of David. What the key of David symbolizes is the authority of the throne of God. The authority of the throne of God as given to a faithful steward of that authority. And the idea being that those 
that represented the Lord in the old covenant were as the stewards of the Lord who held the key of authority, which is the scriptures. And because they had been unfaithful, the Lord had removed them from their position of representing the Lord. And now he has given that key to a new and faithful steward. Christ is now and permanently from this point forward, the representation of the Lord's authority in the earth forever. So allegiance to Christ brings you under the blessings of the one who holds the key of David and uh, uh, refusal to acknowledge Christ in his role uh, then uh, brings you into a relationship where those blessings are not available to you. Just like they, the synagogue members, had shut the door on the believers who now were professing Christ. Christ is saying, it's me that opens and shuts the door now. They think they have the key to the door, but they no longer do. I have the key to the door, the door to open the door to fellowship with God. I'm the only one who can open it, and I'm the only one that can close it. I'm in charge of who comes in and who leaves. Now, um, from here, the Lord begins to commend the church as he did with each one of the churches. If there was anything that was pleasing in his sight as he looked at and evaluated the church, the first thing he says to them is in verse eight, something he had said to many of the others of the seven. And I I just find it uh, a blessing for each one of the times that he does this. Uh, you know, from my perspective, I'm thinking, of course, in terms of as the Lord looks at us and sees us, uh, he says to them in verse eight, I know your works. And the works here are not just, I know what you do for a living. He's not talking about that. He knows what they're doing in their service to him. He knows how they are participating in the work of his kingdom. And he doesn't overlook any of that. He sees it, he values it, it's important to him. It has enduring value, not just in their lives, but for eternity. These are works that he knows that are going to bear eternal value even beyond the final day of judgment. I know your works, behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut again. I'm just emphasizing that the door to the synagogue had been shut to many of the members of this church, but he's letting them know with a great word of encouragement, they may have shut the door in your face, they may have slammed it and locked it, but I've opened a door before you, a door into God's fellowship that no man will ever be able to shut to you. I'm in charge of who has a relationship with God, they are not. And then he says this, as I mentioned, which could be taken as the only critical word, but I am not viewing it as a criticism. I know that you have but little power. Now, little power equals weakness. So someone who has much power, we consider to be strong. Someone who has little power, we consider to be weak. This, I believe, is a accurate description from the Lord of what we can only call a weak church. Now the question is, is he describing spiritual weakness in the church? Spiritual weakness is never a good thing. Spiritual weakness implies you have no ability to actually be faithful and obedient. You have no ability to actually serve the Lord. Um, you're vulnerable and susceptible to every temptation. You have no self-control, you have no self-discipline. You know, that, that kind of weakness is never commendable. Um, I don't believe that that's what the Lord is addressing with this church because of what he connects to what he's just said in his immediate next statement. I know you have but little power and yet, meaning this is all one flowing statement, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, what does it mean to keep his word? It means they've been faithful to the word of God. They've been faithful to the gospel. They have not veered off one iota from a true allegiance to the true and revealed gospel of salvation. There's only one message that actually saves. That's not my rule. That's the Lord's. And they've been faithful to that. 
They haven't changed the saving message at all, though in all the 20 centuries since then, many churches have. This church hasn't changed the saving message. And in terms of their relationship to the word of God, they've been consistent and faithful to the scriptures. So I don't think that defines or describes spiritual weakness. That level of faithfulness to the word of God is a, is a characteristic of spiritual strength, inward strength, that only the Lord can give by his grace and clearly had given that measure of grace to them. So if they're not, if they're not weak spiritually, in what sense are they weak? Most likely, and almost all of the commentators, the good ones on the book of Revelation, uh, identify this, so I'm just gonna follow their lead on this point. Um, they describe it as most likely one, or, one of these two things or a combination of both. They were probably weak in numbers, meaning it was a relatively small church, and they were probably, be, and especially because of the circumstance of being locked out of the synagogue, they were probably weak in cultural and social influence in the city at this point. Meaning they weren't a tremendously influential church in terms of exerting influence over the city. It was more just bearing up under the influence of the city toward them so that they were not overwhelmed by the corrupt influence of the surrounding culture. They, were, they just had enough strength at this point in their development as a church to be strong and faithful and hold to their spiritual integrity, but they weren't like radiating that outward to such an extent that it, it was overwhelming the city around them yet. Maybe that would happen eventually, but at this point, that was not the case. Anyway, this uh, caused me to think about our own moment in history. We live, and I'm speaking church-wise here, we live in an, the era of the mega church, don't we? Um, there are, you know, there's not thousands of mega churches, but there's, there's more now than there ever have been before. And you know, what I mean by a mega church is, I, I would say, for me, a mega church is probably like 5,000 members minimum. I mean, if you're only 4,000 members, you're not a mega church really, are you? And there are churches much larger than that. You know, the one in Orange County, Saddleback, I think they claim 30,000 members. The Joel Osteen's church in Houston, and I say church with, you know, kind of uh, um, air quotes surrounding it. Um, they they fill, literally, they, he years ago bought a, a basketball arena and, and remodeled it to fit all of the people that want to attend his Sunday service. And even then, I don't know if you know this, but they literally sell tickets to get in because it's so popular. You can't just walk in and expect to have a seat in his Sunday service. Um, you know, so the, I, think the, I think the attendance level is something like 18,000 seats. And every Sunday, if you've ever looked on TV, and I've more than once looked at, at his TV show, every Sunday, it looks to me like every single seat is filled. So uh, you have a church like that, it's prominent. And what do you get when you get 18,000, 30,000, that many people attending a church? What do you get in terms of the church bank account, generally? Yeah, you, you get money, which equals what? Influence. Money equals influence. And numbers equal influence, to where even local politicians start to take notice. And, you know, decisions that they're making, generally speaking, consider, you know, if I do this or I make this move or if I say this, uh, I don't want this 30,000 member congregation turning against me. I want them on my side in each and every circumstance. That's not all bad. I, I, there are some elements of that that the Lord can use. Um, and so I'm not arguing against mega churches entirely, though I, I think there are some inherent flaws to such a large church. But nevertheless, the Philadelphian church was not that. We don't know how many were there. We don't know, there's no record anywhere in early Christian writings, and certainly none in scripture, in terms of how many were actually attending the church at the time of the writing of this letter. But they were, they were, they were probably small in number, and they were weak in influence in terms of, of you know, really 
having that kind of an impact on the surrounding city, the surrounding society and culture. So my question is this, and I, I mentioned a couple of churches a moment ago, and you know, I, I, you know I'm not a big fan of either one of those churches uh, in terms of some of the compromises that I've seen. So let me ask you this. If you had the option, and I already know the answer for many of you because you're here rather than there, right? Well, of course you don't live in Houston, but you could drive down to Orange County. It's theoretically within the realm of possibility you could do that. And there are large churches not that far from where we meet. The idea is, which would you choose if you had the option? Would you choose to attend a powerful church in numbers, in finances, and in influence, but coming with that package are some inherent compromises? Or would you choose to attend a weaker church in numbers, in influence, but without those compromises as part of the package, uh, one that is faithful to the gospel and faithful to the word of God? And those are, those are questions that every believer has, you know, in our generation, Philadelphia generation, they didn't have to make those kind of decisions because there was only one choice if you wanted to go to church. Uh, but for us, those are things that we have to consider. Uh, I did think of this passage from Paul's own personal testimony back in 2 Corinthians. I'll just read this briefly without camping on it. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 this is from his personal testimony. It's not a church testimony, but I do think there's some application uh, at a church level here as well. This is an interaction between the Lord and Paul when he was struggling with a particular trial that the Lord took him through. Uh, 2 Corinthians 12.9. This is the Lord speaking to Paul. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. What that tells me is there is some benefit to having an experience of weakness in your Christian life. Doesn't mean you have to stay constantly in weakness, but it certainly means that without experiencing weakness, you'll never experience what Paul experienced and the Lord was speaking about. The power that the Lord gives in his grace to bear up in circumstances that he appoints for us that leave us weak. My grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast, not so much in the things that people normally boast in. Look how many numbers we have. Look how many people attend. Look how much money we have in the bank. Look what a great facility we've purchased and all the land that we own and all of the programs we have. Those, He's not boasting in those kinds of things. He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, and this is the mystery of walking with the Lord in such circumstances, when I am weak, then I am strong. You know, and you might say to Paul, Paul, Make up your mind. Which is it? Are you weak or are you strong? And he's saying both. I am weak in circumstance, but that weakness in circumstance is creating at a deeper level in me a spiritual strength that I never would have achieved without going through the circumstance of weakness. All right. Um, let's go on to this difficult portion where he, the Lord refers, and we're back in Revelation 3. The Lord refers to the synagogue of Satan. Verse nine, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Um, this is based on another, this is the third time in this letter now, another prophecy of Isaiah. So. Keep your place here. Jump back with me one more time. I think this will be our last time to go back to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 60. I'll read verses 14 and 15. And there's an interesting twist in how it now applies to the Philadelphians. 
Isaiah 60, verse 14. The sons of those who afflicted you, who is he speaking to? He's speaking to his covenant people, Israel, at that time in the old covenant. And he's speaking about the sons of those who were afflicting them. Who was afflicting them? Just, I don't have time to develop all the background, but the basic story is Israel, as Isaiah's prophesying, was being afflicted by Gentiles. Unbelievers outside the covenant were afflicting true believers inside the covenant. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you. And all who despise you shall bow down at you, your feet and they shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever. A joy from age to age. Now what's the interesting twist? The Lord clearly quotes this. He references this to the Philadelphians. And he's talking about a synagogue of Satan and he's saying, I will make them, just like Isaiah said, just like I said through Isaiah, that I'll make the Gentiles afflicting you, those outside the covenant, come and bow down before you who are truly in the covenant, meaning I'll have them acknowledge that you're the ones with a true relationship with the Lord, not them. Here now, in relationship to this issue with the synagogue of Satan, he's saying, I'll make the members of the synagogue of Satan come and bow down before you and know that I've really loved you, which implies I don't love them the way that I love you. What's he talking about? All right, so there's, he, he gives a, a brief explanation here and it's a, a difficult one, uh, but it's an important one because again, the Lord is speaking the truth about everyone. He's not just speaking the truth to his church, he's speaking the truth here about those who are outside of the church. He says, the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews, but are not, but lie. Now, let me just take a moment to unpack that and make sure we, we understand what's being said here. The word lie here as it's used can mean someone that's lying because they know what they're saying is not the truth and they're trying to pull the wool over your eyes. But it can also refer to someone who themselves is deceived. And because they're deceived, they are lying in all of what they have to say about what they're deceived about. Like for instance, I'll give you an example. If, if you had a conversation with a Jehovah's Witness person ringing your front doorbell and standing on your front porch, um, they're lying to you in whatever they say to you about the Lord and about the gospel but they may themselves be fully deceived. They, not, they might not be thinking, I am bringing a false gospel and a false doctrine, a heretical false doctrine to these people, and I know it's false, but I'm gonna try to convince them anyway. It's generally not the case. They themselves are being lied to, have bought the lie, swallowed the lie, and so they are passing on the lie in their effort to try to do the right thing, but it's not the right thing because it's all based on a lie. So what's going on here is the members of the synagogue in the city think that they truly belong to the Lord and that they're the only true congregation in the city. That's what they think, but they're wrong. They're, they've bought a lie. They're being deceived because now ever since Christ died on the cross and rose again from the dead, the only way to have a true relationship with the Lord, what we would call a covenant relationship, is through Christ. That's it. He is the only doorway into true fellowship with God. You can no longer approach God only through the law of Moses like those in the synagogue were trying to do. And so the idea here is the Lord is identifying them as a synagogue of Satan. He's not exaggerating here when he uses that phrase. What he's describing is they're a false synagogue. They're, the synagogue was a congregation of the old covenant people of God, but now it's based on a lie. The lie is this, you can have a true relationship with God apart from Christ. You can have a true relationship with God apart from the cross and apart from the resurrection. And that's just not true. And so as a result, they had, were buying a lie, swallowing a lie, and then passing on that lie, and especially in their persecution of the one true congregation that was in the city of Philadelphia, which was 
of course, the uh, church in Philadelphia. So they were claiming to represent God, but they were actually serving Satan's purposes without realizing that that was happening. So this is a promise of vindication. This is a promise that, what, the, the interesting twist is, in the, in the original prophecy in Isaiah, it's the Lord says, I'll cause the unbelieving Gentiles that are persecuting you to recognize that you are the ones that have a true relationship with God. And, and here the Lord is saying, I will cause the unbelieving Jewish people that are persecuting you. They're now, the, the, the role's been flipped. They were the persecuted, but now they're the persecutors. And he's saying, I will cause them at some future point to have to acknowledge that the church are the ones that I love. And the church here isn't exclusive of Jewish people. The church is all who've embraced Christ as Lord and Savior as the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament pointed forward to. Whether you start life Jewish or start life Gentile no longer matters. All that matters is, do you embrace the gospel of salvation and are you saved on that basis and that basis alone? And uh, I'd like to spend more time there, but uh, I have to finish this letter. Verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who, who dwell on the earth, I am coming soon. Now, uh, all of this is widely interpreted in different ways depending upon your interpretation of the entire book of Revelation. You guys have heard my viewpoint many times, but I'll just briefly rehearse it really quick again. And that is, there's, there's two basic ways. There's actually a total of four, but two basic ways to interpret the book of Revelation. One, either it's all talking about far distant future events that are still in our future, but we're 2,000 years in the future of the members of the church in Philadelphia, or it's talking about events in their near future. And we've emphasized from chapter one, the first three verses, the Lord himself says, all of the things written in this book are going to happen soon, and the time of fulfillment of all of these things is near. And so I'm convinced that the primary focal point of all of the book of Revelation is about events that were going to be fulfilled in 70 AD, except for the last couple of chapters which are talking about all of our eternal future. So here, when the Lord says, I will keep you from the hour of trial coming on the world, um, there are many interpreters that think what he's talking about is the far distant future great tribulation at the end of history just before the second coming of Christ that was 2,000 years at least in the future of the Philadelphians. Number one, how does that help them? The Philadelphians are the ones that were struggling. They're the ones that were enduring persecution. And what these interpreters think is that he's saying to them, don't worry, 2,000 years from now, I'll keep you from the trial of the great tribulation at the end of history. It just doesn't make any sense if you understand it's first to be read from the perspective of those that received, first received the letter. So what can it mean? First, the word world here is commonly misunderstood. There are a couple of different words in Greek that can be translated world. One refers to the entire planet. That's not the word he uses here. He's not talking about a trial coming on the entire planet. That's not what the Great Tribulation was about. The Great Tribulation was focused on the city of Jerusalem and events surrounding the destruction of the temple and the end, the final and climactic end of the old covenant way of approaching God. So the word world or translated world here literally should have been translated land. And it usually is throughout the New Testament. So this is what he actually says um, in verse, where am I at here? Uh, verse 10, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole land. The trial coming on the whole land was the great tribulation, but it was the circumstances involving the climactic events, the, the traumatic events between 67 and 70 AD, the three and a half year siege of the city of Jerusalem by the Roman Empire, the destruction of the city, the destruction of the temple, and the final fall of that nation as it existed at that time. Now, 
What does that have to do with the Philadelphians who live all the way over in modern-day Turkey? It's not terribly far from the city of Jerusalem, but it is enough far away. Well, during this three-year time period, three-and-a-half-year time period, it was the destruction of Jerusalem, but it was also a um, kind of a series of convulsions throughout the entire Roman Empire. One, the Roman Empire would die in the middle of this circumstance, and they would go through a sequence of of traumatic events where they tried three different empire, uh, emperors within a, the space of a single year. There, there was rebellions, there was, there was all kinds of stuff that convulsed the Roman Empire. And the Lord is saying to the Philadelphian church, this is just about to happen, it's going to happen soon, but number one, be aware that I'm in charge of it. Number two, it's gonna be fairly short. It's going to be an hour of trial. Not literally just a 60 minute hour, but when the Lord says this judgment, this trial is gonna last an hour of your life, what is he trying to say? It's not gonna last a day. It's not gonna last a, a week, a month, a year. It's not gonna last a decade. In other words, it's a fairly short but intense experience that's going to happen. And three and a half years in that sense captures that idea of an hour of trial. And he says to them, because you've kept my word, meaning that he is going to reward them in the midst of this coming trial, he's gonna reward them with a special care and a special concern and a special provision. The faithful members of Philadelphian church will be watched over in a special way by the Lord during whatever is coming upon the land and upon the empire. Now, what, what that means to me is this. If we remain faithful, like there's some stuff stirring right now in the Middle East. You don't know. I don't know. It could lead to big problems in the world, bigger problems than already exist. There's stuff going on between Russia and Ukraine. Our inflation is out of control. The, the, the border issue, I mean, the, how many, I, I could just go on and name things that are layering problems and, and stress factors in our mind. It could all come together in a really traumatic way, much more even than it is right now. What I'm taking to heart when he says, because you have kept my word, I will keep you. To keep you means I will guard you, I'll protect you, I'll watch over you, I'll make sure you're not overwhelmed by it. It may overwhelm the majority of people that experience it, but it won't overwhelm you because I'm watching over you. So whatever we go through as a, as a world, as a society, as a culture, and we're part of that in the sense of we're living here while it's happening, we can be assured that if we're faithful to him, he will give special focused, protecting attention to us. Now, he says, I'm coming soon. I've talked about this many times. So I just don't have the time to develop all this. Um, what does he mean, I'm coming soon? Well, we have to interpret the words soon in the same way we did back in chapter one, verse one. Uh, these things are things that will soon take place. Soon either means soon or it doesn't mean soon. I'm a big fan of soon means soon. So when he says, I'm coming soon, he means he's coming soon from their perspective, not our perspective. Soon isn't stretched ever 2,000 years long. It just doesn't work that way. Or, or the word loses its significance and meaning altogether. So he's talking about a coming soon to them. It cannot be a reference to the second coming here, though there are second coming references elsewhere in God's word. So what does he mean? He means that he's coming in judgment upon the world He's coming in judgment upon the land. He's coming in judgment upon the synagogue of Satan. But he's coming in what way for the Philadelphia church? Protection, provision, care, concern, guardianship. He's coming in what, it's like during the, the, the 10 plagues being poured out upon Egypt. And here are the children of Israel living in the land of Goshen. And in one of the plagues, it was dark everywhere in Egypt, so you couldn't even see your hand in front of your face, but there was what in Goshen? Light. Light. So judgment coming for all except those that belong to him and are faithful to him. He'll watch over them. Doesn't mean they won't have difficulty to deal with. You know, 
if there's inflation in the world, does it affect you? Yes. But you will not be overwhelmed by it if you remain faithful to him. Somehow, some way, the Lord will make sure enough dollars get into your pocket that you can survive. That's the point. Um, the Lord's promise of hope for the Philadelphians. To the one who conquers, and I just want to remind you, I said this about each one of the letters so far. We don't conquer here by power, expressions of power. They weren't conquering by expressions of power. They were conquering by what? By their faithfulness. We conquer by simply remaining true and steadfast and faithful to the Lord, to his gospel, and to the word of God. To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. They had been ejected from the synagogue, and the Lord is now promising, but I will not eject you from my house, my temple. In fact, I'm making you a permanent part of my house, a pillar. You remove a pillar from a house, and what happens to the house? It starts to collapse. He's saying, I'm never taking you out of this house that I'm building. I will make you a pillar in my house. You have a permanent, solid, stable place and role in the house that I am building. And then I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city, the new Jerusalem. He's emphasizing new in contrast to the old earthly Jerusalem and my own new name. That's interesting to me. Uh, I, I wish I had time to develop it. I don't. Um, I think he's referencing the word Lord. That's the new name that was given to Christ in his ascension. He is now Lord over all. All of that, God's name, the name of the city, and the name of the Lord written on their foreheads. Um, and just like the city had been rebranded with new names several times, the Lord is promising he will give a new but heavenly identity to all of us who remain faithful to him all right listen i again but i got i got it done okay give me props give me props i didn't stretch it into a two-parter um i, I again ran a slate tim sorry we won't have time for the song